Book three, chapter twelve, part one of Tasker Jevons the Real Story by May Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Book three, his story, chapter twelve, part one. At this period, and even now when I go back to it, I am completely puzzled by Jevons. Here was a man who professed to understand his wife to know what she was feeling and thinking in every moment of her existence he would tell you that a man was a fool if he couldn't get the woman he wanted and yet having got her he didn't seem to know in the most elementary way how to keep her he didn't seem to care he adored her and yet he didn't seem to care i believe he knew that she was leaving him that she had left him and yet here he was treating her departure as if it didn't matter as if it were the most natural and reasonable thing in the world and lashing himself into a fury about his wretched motor-car and he was treating the dangerous element in the case charlie thesiger as if it didn't matter either as if it didn't exist he must have known we'd taken his car out to bring his wife back he knew we wouldn't have touched the beastly thing for anything short of saving her life or his honour and yet he had flown into a passion and sworn at his chauffeur because we'd taken it he adored his wife and yet he behaved as if she were of no importance compared with the god he'd made of his motor-car all that evening i remember he was absorbed in the solitary problem of how he could save his god from further outrages he settled it towards midnight by saying that he'd buy another car that we could do what we damn well pleased with a car that wouldn't matter that you could take out in all weathers i'll not have that black and white car used as it was used this afternoon he said and after lashing himself up again he ended quite sweetly by saying it's my fault ferny i ought to have had two cars all along i said it would be a good plan if a black and white car was only to be looked at he admitted with a recrudescence of his old childlike innocence that he liked looking at it i've no doubt he said it made him feel something but i forget what but when the morning came he wouldn't hear of my going i was to stay out my fortnight it was a fine day and the dust was laid perhaps he could take me for a spin across the downs to the coast or somewhere he'd send parker up to town to look after nurse and baby and the luggage he didn't want he said to be left alone oh yes it was plain to me that he didn't want to be left that he couldn't bear it he was trying to lure me to stay with him by holding out this prospect of a spin i have since believed that he would have agreed to take his car out in almost any weather if that had been the only way to keep me he clung to me desperately pathetically as he had clung nine years ago at bruges when viola had left him there he might possibly this time have clung to anybody he was so afraid of being left alone i think he felt that loneliness here in the vast unfamiliar landscape that he had invaded would be as bad as loneliness in bruges he would be abandoned as he had been then in a foreign country so till sunday morning i stayed with him it was on my last evening the evening of saturday august the first that he spoke of viola he asked me if i thought that nora and i could keep her with us if necessary for he hesitated for six months it was as if he had given her six months it would he said be better i said that nora would be delighted to keep her for any number of months but did he think she'd stay he said why shouldn't she stay of course she'd stay she was awfully fond of us and it was the best thing she could do and it would make it so much easier for him 
he'd feel more comfortable as long as he knew she was with us he spoke as if it were he and not viola who was leaving i said then that though we were glad to have her we couldn't of course accept any responsibility he smiled slightly and asked for what i said well and he answered his own question in the pause i made i suppose you mean for anything she may take it into her head to do i put it to him that viola's movements were not always exactly calculable she might take it into her head to do anything i really couldn't answer for her you can't he said but i can she may go off and look at a belfry or two i should have said that looking at the belfry was a phrase the family had adopted for any queer thing that any of us might do if there's a belfry anywhere to be seen you may depend upon it she'd want to look at it whether i said it's in a dangerous place or not whether it's in a dangerous place or not but i'll trust you to keep her out of dangerous places that's rather what i wanted to talk to you about i protested there's no good talking about it i've told you that's just precisely the responsibility i won't take and i won't let nora take it if you think there's going to be any danger you must look after your own wife yourself my dear fellow how can i look after her if i'm not here you're as much here as i am i said more so and she's your wife not mine i can say now there's no reason why i shouldn't it would only amuse jimmy if he were to see it written i can say now that for one awful moment i suspected jimmy of meditating an infidelity perhaps he was but not as we count infidelity he ignored what i took to be the essence of the thing we don't know he said where any of us are going to be for the next four months or the next four years i know that i jolly well shan't be here what i want to propose is this that you'll look after viola and let her have your house when she wants to be in town and that you have this house for yourself and nora and baby when you want to be in the country just as if it was your own there'll be that other car you can have as if it was your own you can run up to town in it and you'll probably find that the country will be the best place for you it'll be much the best place for them and the safest if you aren't here i couldn't see it even then i said my dear chap why shouldn't i be here i certainly mean to be here and he considered it and said i don't see why not it's different for you you've got a child and i haven't i said i couldn't see what baby had to do with it and he replied that a young child was an infernal complication and that he was jolly glad he hadn't got one what baby had to do with it was to keep me out of it then i asked him what on earth he was talking about he said i'm talking about the european conflagration what are you he had been talking about it all the time he had been thinking of nothing but the european conflagration for the last four days it was the thing he said that he had prophesied nine years ago didn't i remember oh yes i remembered but then he was always prophesying something well then here it was and it had come by god at the very date he had given it i can see him sitting there in his study at amershot old grange he was deadly quiet not a gesture came to disturb my sense of his tranquil triumph in the fulfilment of his prophecy to say that he enjoyed the european conflagration because it had proved him so abundantly right would give a false impression of an extraordinary and complicated state of mind there was a sort of exaltation about him his face positively shone as if the european conflagration illuminated it from afar but it was a holy and a sacred exaltation pure from egoism except that he saw himself 
there's no doubt that already he did see himself figuring i remember saying as lots of people were saying then that i didn't suppose for a moment we should be dragged into it dragged he said dragged we shall be in it without dragging in the very thick from the instant the germans broke into luxembourg and he gave them twenty-four hours we should be in it we couldn't keep out with a rag of honour to our names france he declared would be in to-day he gave us i think but i do not like to say positively that he gave us three days he couldn't have been as dead right as all that what struck me then as so extravagantly odd was not that he had foreseen the war and england's part in it but that he should have seen himself there in the thick blazing away in the very middle of the conflagration what on earth jimmy conceived that he should have to do with it i couldn't think and all of a sudden i had a reminiscence of jevons as i had seen him nine years ago talking to reggie thesiger in viola's rooms at hampstead prophesying war and lamenting that he wouldn't be in it because he was an arrant coward and as i looked at him again i saw that what made his face shine like that was the sweat that had broken out on it then he made a remark about charlie thesiger thesiger he said knew all about it he had gone up he supposed i knew that to offer his services to the war office in the event of england's coming in that charlie had used the opportunity of going to make love to jimmy's wife didn't seem to bother jimmy in the least sunday i remember was a fine day with all the dust laid and jimmy made himself lovable by running me up to london in his sacred car he still clung i could see that he clung to the superstition of its sanctity he left me at my door in edwards square which he refused to enter i think he was afraid of seeing viola i thought at the time that this was because he was aware of her attitude that he knew she was at the end of her tether and that he wanted to be righteously fair to give her time to think about leaving him if she wanted to leave him that he was behaving now as he had behaved at bruges when he stood back and let me have my innings and gave her her chance to free herself and yet i was puzzled even he could hardly stand back to give thesiger an innings he may have had an inkling there may have been something of his queer scrupulous tenderness in this avoidance of her there may have been his reckless propensity to take the risk but i am convinced that even then his main object was like viola to burn his boats he was afraid that if he were to see viola again he wouldn't be able to go through with it he may even have been glad that she had left him because it had made his way easier and so when he had landed me at my door he turned the black nose of his car round and ran out of edwards square faster than he had run in as if he were afraid that the place would catch and keep him he didn't go back to amershott he stayed in london in one of his clubs he had several now besides the club in dover street and i saw him sometimes i didn't say anything to viola about him i didn't tell her he was in town it was as if there had been some tacit understanding among the three of us there must have been some tacit agreement between him and me sunday passed and monday somehow and on tuesday the fourth we were all holding our breaths under the tension of the ultimatum i have no doubt that in those three days i had some opinion of my own about the european conflagration that i must have stared with my own eyes sometimes at the fate of europe and the fate of england that i must have felt some horror and anxiety and excitement that was my own but as i look back on it all i am aware chiefly of jevons of his opinions his vision his horror and excitement 
i seem to have spent the greater part of those three days with jevons and there are moments in looking back when he fills the scene he is the largest and most prominent figure in the crowd that walked the streets with me on the evening of the ultimatum that waited with me outside buckingham palace when london let itself loose in madness he seems the only sane figure in that crowd or in the processions that moved for hours on end up and down parliament street between trafalgar square and palace yard it is as if i had stood alone with jevons before the mansion house at midnight when the ultimatum was declared and when i say that it was his horror and anxiety and excitement and his defiance and exaltation if you like that i felt i do not mean that jevons talked about it he was for those three days mostly silent it is that i saw him consumed and burned up by the fever of patriotism and war and that beside his passion any emotion i may have felt hardly counted and every minute we expected to hear him say that he liked the war because it made him feel manly nora and i pretended to each other that he would say it it was our idea of a joke god forgive us it was on wednesday the fifth very early in the morning that he began trying to enlist it was the first thing he did and we thought that funny we thought it so funny that even if he hadn't told us not to tell viola we wouldn't have told her we felt that it wouldn't have been quite fair to either of them and none of the thesigers or anybody connected with the thesigers could take jimmy seriously for one moment with general thesiger waiting to be sent to the front and reggie thesiger preparing to go and charlie thesiger who might be called on any day with bertie and all his male cousins enlisting and pulling all the ropes they could lay their hands on to get their commission they hadn't time for jimmy and his importunity he was importunate and i'm afraid that in those weeks jimmy didn't exist for them or any of us except as a jest that lightened our labours now and then they were so busy getting their kits that they couldn't even think of the fate of europe and viola what she was thinking and feeling god or jevons only knew she didn't tell us but i was pretty sure that with reggie starting for the front in two weeks it wasn't jevons she was thinking of i suspected that she wasn't far from feeling that secret hatred of jimmy that had come to her once or twice before when she had thought of reggie remember that all this time even after that illness of hers last year when she and reggie met they met as well-bred strangers she had never lowered her flag or made one sign she had just suffered in secret with the thought of reggie biting deeper and deeper into her mind till wherever the memory of reggie was there was a wound and she had been ill of her wounds and had nearly died of them and in those two weeks she had begun to look as if she were going to be ill again it was bad enough for nora and for all of them but conceive what it must have been for her and so we came to reggie's last day and the night when he came to us to say good-bye i think she must have written to him or made some sign but i'm not sure i only know that he was prepared for her and that when she came into the room at the last minute as he turned from nora's arms he closed on her and that they held each other an instant tight like lovers and that neither of them said a word after that the war must have seemed to her as it seemed to all of us to have wiped jimmy out just at first we thought that this was the secret of jimmy's agony of his rushings round and round and of his ceaseless manoeuvring he knew that the war was going to wipe him out he knew that the world had no use for his sort the men who only wrote things there was an end of his writing of his novels and his short stories and his plays 
and if he didn't look out and do something there would be an end of him and he couldn't bear it he couldn't bear to be reduced to inactivity and insignificance to be wiped out he wasn't going to be made an end of if he could help it these were the things we said about him what we saw or thought we saw was the revolt of his egoism it didn't look quite sane he was furious when he found out that even if he enlisted he couldn't buy a commission he didn't seem to realize that there were things he couldn't buy he was still more furious when he found that the Thesigers wouldn't help him they could help him he declared if they liked commissions were being given every day to the wrong people by influence up till now with his talk about commissions he had been purely funny and we had laughed at him but when he found that he couldn't enlist that they wouldn't have him that he wasn't strong enough they'd discovered a leaky valve in his heart or something and that in any case he was too old when he broke down as he tried to tell me this he wasn't funny at all he'd been to every recruiting station in london and his own county and they all said the same thing he was too old this he said was where his beastly celebrity had gone back on him he could very easily have lied about his age he didn't look it in fact he had lied about it freely to every one of them but his age was recorded against him in the yearbooks of his craft and he couldn't lie about his heart he didn't know it had a valve that leaked he didn't believe it he had given the man who examined it the lie and he had gone to a heart specialist to get the report which he regarded as a libel contradicted and the heart specialist had confirmed it and told him he wasn't the first man who had come to him to get an opinion overruled he said he was to keep quiet and avoid excitement he mustn't dream of going to the front i think the specialist must have been sorry for jevons for he went on to tell him that there were other ways in which he could serve his country he seems to have talked a lot of rot about the pen being mightier than the sword and to have advised jimmy to use his powerful pen and at that jimmy seems to have broken from him in a passion and here he was in a passion still ramping up and down that private room he had at his club and saying damn my powerful pen fernie damn my powerful pen the whole system he said was rotten he'd a good mind to expose it he'd expose it in the papers that was the use he'd make of his powerful pen see how they'd like that end of book three chapter twelve part one recording by expatriate in bangor maine